This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. This evening, we have a guest who uh, has taken on the legal system across Europe for the right to speak freely. Elizabeth sabadich Wolf. thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an, it's an honor and a privilege. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have someone on who uh, I have read quite a bit about over the last uh, probably 10 years, 11 years, and your experiences through the legal system, which you wouldn't wish on anyone. But before we get into that, actually, I'll just ask our viewers to, uh, wherever you're watching, do pass it on. It's great to see the last live uh, video we did on Thursday with the Voice of Wales guys. It was great to see you move over to more or less Facebook en masse. So uh, most, we're probably 80, 90% of our normal views on YouTube which wasn't there, all went over to Facebook. So thank you so much for following us. We'll try and make it as easy as possible as we're censored in different places. So we hope we don't lose you as we move around. Um, Elizabeth, I've just been reading your book, The Truth is No Defense. And you, the first part half of the book is your story of a very interesting background of being an, an, a nomadic life, I guess, in the diplomatic service. And it's a, a life that actually is quite different to most of our viewers. So could you just give us a couple of minutes and introduce yourself before we jump into the topic of Islam and free speech? Okay, well, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a long story. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not that old yet. I'm going to be half a century uh, sometime uh, this year. Uh, but still, you know what I what I experienced, what I've been through, uh, you know, it's 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 quite amazing looking back. And when I wrote this book, I was actually really amazed, uh, you know, what I what I experienced. Now, uh, to make a long story short, uh, I am a, a diplomat's brat. I was uh, I was born in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, which was my father's first post, uh, and then. My family and I moved around from uh, from New York, where I went to kindergarten, uh, to Iran, uh, where I experienced the the revolution firsthand. Actually, also the the the, the final uh, years of uh, the Shah before he was ousted yeah. and removed and and mm -hmm. sent abroad. Uh, I went to school there, or as much as I could, because I couldn't go to school a lot because there was a revolution going on. Um, I also uh, spent. Four years of my life in Chicago went to school there, uh, which is the explanation for why is my English so good? Why am I bilingual? I am completely bilingual simply because I went to school in in Chicago, and uh, it also formed those those years in Chicago were important uh, in the sense that I was introduced to. Uh, the American Constitution, the American way of life, of uh, the concept of freedom, and uh, as I describe in my book, I was naive enough to think that that concept also applied uh, to me in in Austria. And of course, I was sorely mistaken, and I was uh, put in my put in my place uh, by the Austrian legal system. Uh, I graduated from high school in Vienna. 
and uh, then became a ski instructor because I didn't want to go to university right away. I felt I wasn't really ready for it, and I needed to, you know, some take some time off. I mentioned that because working as a ski instructor was also extremely instructive in that you, you know, ski being a ski instructor doesn't mean that the weather is really beautiful every single day. And you really have to force yourself, you know, when it's mm -hmm. when it's like minus 30 outside and the wind is blowing and you've got paying clients uh, who, you know, were looking forward to spending a vacation in beautiful Austria for maybe 12 months and saving mm -hmm. up their money. So you really need to to force yourself to be this happy kind of person that you may not be. And you, it really might totally piss you off to go outside uh, in this god awful weather. But, you know, you do it. So mm. uh, a lot of the strength that I drew uh, during my ordeal uh, with the with the court system came from those uh, years as a ski instructor, having to do things that really aren't natural to me, like going out in bad weather, but still doing that uh, because it needs to be done. And you told me before that you are a political animal. Well, I'm so am I. So after my Good. ski instructing days, I took a job at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with the foreign minister, who was at the same time also the vice chancellor. And uh, what an experience that was for me, because I got to experience the entire uh, system of Austrian government mm. versus American government, uh, the American way of of uh, of yeah of politics. And it taught me a whole lot about that, but I knew this wasn't going to be my future. Now, what I did not mention before is that in 1990, I found myself uh, at the center of uh, basically world attention when I was at a summer job in, in Kuwait at the Austrian embassy stamping visas. Oh, wow. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that because I, pe I believe people should read about that in the book. Um, but mm. I, was a, I was a hostage and I, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't leave the country and I was stuck uh, in Kuwait and it made a, a big mark on me as well. So fast forward to 1996, I decided I needed to return to Kuwait and all of a sudden I found, I found this um, uh, opening, a job opening at the Austrian embassy in Kuwait, same job that I did in uh, 1990. And of course, have, you know, I was single at the time, I was young and I said, look, I need to do this job. So I moved to Kuwait. Hmm. Now, why is this so important? Well, this was my first job on my own uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the diplomatic service. And uh, it made a huge difference in my life in that I experienced Islam for the first time as an adult, hmm. as an adult woman in, uh, in Kuwait. And uh, like I said, it made a, a difference because, uh, you know, Islam... People don't really understand Islam, and people don't really understand Islam because they don't live it. They may know about it, but they don't live it. And living mm. Islam 24-7 in an Islamic country is a whole different ballgame. Yeah. And so it was for me. Now, Kuwait is fairly free, or was at the time fairly free. Uh, you know, I was a carefree 25-year-old. I, you know, I had boyfriends. I had fun. I did... I. You know, I, I lived a fairly free life within mm. a certain corridor. Um, but what really struck me was 
two things. The first thing is Ramadan. The first time you experience Ramadan, and I get into this in, in the book as well, the first time you experience Ramadan, it's kind of exotic, it's kind of fun, it's kind of different. Mm. Um, you don't really, you, you look at these fasting uh, people and you don't really know what to make of it. Uh, by the second Ramadan, uh, the true Elizabeth came and I started doing things to oppose Ramadan because I really couldn't understand the, the use of it, you know. Why, why do people actually fast uh, for a couple hours or a few hours a day and then they, they binge eat yep. during the night? I mean, what's the real point behind this? Uh, so I started uh, doing my own protest. Uh, I lived in the embassy building, so I would start preparing my lunch uh, while the others were fasting. And I was actually enjoying the thought that these people's stomachs were probably growling and I could mm. still have my, my food and, uh, and enjoy it. And, you know, I, I, I removed my salami, my pork salami from the freezer and I had my pork salami. And sometimes I even walked into the visa section with my sandwich with, you know, pork salami in the sandwich. Um, and I would see these uh, uh, visa-seeking Kuwaitis, uh, you know, <laughs> outside of the visa section, and they were staring mm. at me, but they couldn't do anything because I was on Aust uh, legally, I was on Austrian uh, soil. They couldn't yep. do anything yep. about it. You know, this is this is this is Austria. Okay, they can't do anything. So I became a rebel in a sense. Don't think that I was trying to to make anybody feel bad or feel you know I, I wasn't trying to be a mean bitch mm. that wasn't my intention my intention was i was a rebel yeah uh, i didn't see the point in fasting even though um my close friend and uh, he was our interpreter at the embassy a very devout uh muslim he explained it to me and and how cleansing it is and and he was a chain smoker and i said to him well, you know what? I mean, you you're, you manage to stop smoking during Ramadan. Yeah. So yeah. why don't you just stick to it? I mean, you've always wanted to quit. So why don't you just, I mean, you're forcing yourself to, to not smoke a cigarette, mm. which of course at the time I was, I was still smoking. So I, I had my, I enjoyed my cigarette in front of him. And I said, well, why don't you, why don't you quit? Well, you know, it's so hard. And, and, and uh, no, it's not hard. If you can smoke, if you can quit smoking from, uh, by the time the sun rises, which was yep. around 5 a.m., until yep. the sun sets about 5 p.m., if you can do it 10 hours or 12 hours, why don't you quit for the – it yep. doesn't matter. It makes absolutely no sense, which is why I was even more of a rebel. But anyway. Um, so how did so, you come you know, back to Austria, back, back home? I didn't. I didn't. Okay. Uh, not yet, at least. Um, I, I met my husband in Kuwait. Uh, an Austrian citizen who was at the time working for the UN uh, mm. at the demarcation at the DMZ between uh, Iraq and Kuwait. Yeah. Um, and we decided to get married in 2000. And because he was still studying to be a doctor uh, and I wasn't ready to return to married life in Austria yet, mm. we both decided uh, I would take another posting uh, in Libya. And... Uh, I, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. I wanted to make some money and, and sort of prepare yeah. for married life until, you know, when he became a doctor, we would start life together. But life in Libya was pure hell for many reasons. Uh, I don't feel sorry for myself. I picked 
I chose Libya for many reasons, not least uh, the money, of course. Uh, but for reasons that you will read in the book, life was really hell. I was in yeah. Libya, in Tripoli, in my apartment on 9-11. I recount the story in the book of, of how my landlord, a Libyan, uh, stormed into my apartment without knocking on the door and started screaming, the Jews did it, the Jews did it. Hmm. Um, it was a surreal life, I can tell you that. So, uh, after one year in Libya, I decided to return. It was, it, the, life was unbearable in Libya. Hmm. So, we decided to return to Austria. I settled down. Uh, I finished my, my degree at, at university and then had my daughter. Fast forward to 2000, I would say six or seven, seven, and I start by chance start reading a book called The Misery of Islam. Back then it wasn't translated into English yet, okay. but it has been since, and I highly recommend, I still highly recommend the book. It's called The Misery of Islam, written by an atheist uh, uh, Indian man, and uh, he explained Islam according to its own sources. So none of the Western garbage, mm. but sources straight out of Islam. And this opened my eyes. All of a sudden, I understood what I experienced in Kuwait. All of a sudden, I experienced, I understood why women in Kuwait would say, why do I need to vote? I don't need to vote. Uh, my husband does it for me. Mm. which was completely baffling to me back in 1999. But, yeah. you know, fast forward, it all started to make sense. All of a sudden, the sentence that would actually ultimately get me into trouble, Aisha, the child bride, Muhammad's child bride, having sexual relations with a 56-year-old man, that started making sense. Yeah. The visas that I actually affixed into the passports where the husband was 35 and the bride was 15, all of a sudden made sense. It all of a sudden made sense that they had the same names, the same uh, families. Mm. Why? It's all explained in that book. Yeah. I started, uh, I, was, I was getting kind of concerned because, you know, over the years when I was outside of Kuwait and returned to Austria for these annual uh, um, holidays, I started noticing a change in the population of Austria, which you don't really uh, see when you live here, but when you're outside for a long time and return. So remember in the 1990s, we had the, the um, uh, uh, Bosnian War. Mm, yeah. So Austria took in a lot of Bosnian refugees. Most of these were Muslim. So mm. all of a sudden, I came back from Kuwait, happy that I wouldn't see any of the hijabed women, and I... I walk down the streets and all of a sudden down the street and all of a sudden see a bunch of hijab women yeah. that I really didn't want to see. It's fine in Kuwait. That's an Islamic country. Acceptable. I won't discuss it. But in Austria, my country, no, that's not acceptable. This is an mm. Austrian country, a Christian-based country. I don't want to see a woman hijab, wearing a hijab. And I don't mm. want to see a lot of women wearing hijabs. So uh, I started getting really scared because I, I, I saw from that book that we're, we were on a, on, a, on a really difficult path, uh, that this wasn't going to go down well. 
And I started reading even more, educating myself even more. I got a few copies of the Quran, started reading that, flipping back and forth. I started reading Robert Spencer. I started reading, you know, other other great authors uh, yeah. that I got to know personally later on. And I, I, you know, I did, I did, I really dug into the, the the subject. So first I experienced it, and then I learned about it. Yeah. And so how did you end up? How did you end up teaching this? See, that's where I wanted to get to. So <laughs> I, around, so it was actually twofold. Uh, first of all, I started reaching out to uh, to blog talk radios, and I started telling my story about you know what I was seeing in Austria. And that was noticed uh, by other people in the U.S. You know, here's an Austrian who speaks fairly good English. She can articulate herself, and she can she can report what's going on in Europe. Mm. On the other hand, the Austrian Freedom Party apparently noticed me uh, and asked me. And and mind you, I'm I'm while I am a political animal, I have never been, and I will never be a member of a party. Never have never mm. been one and I will never be one. So even when I was working at the at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I was not a party member of the Conservative Party. Okay. I wouldn't do that. So anyway, they asked me if I could uh, put together a series of seminars, uh, PowerPoint presentations, and start teaching and explaining Islam to interested people. Because they were smart. I mean, the Freedom Party was smart. They knew that you know there was a problem Yep. Nobody wanted to touch it, uh, and they were going to do it. So they hired me, and uh, for a couple of years, I did a, uh, a series of seminars, three seminars per semester, uh, all fully sourced PowerPoint presentations. Now, this was not uh, a presentation where you'd think, oh, it, it just came out of my mind. You know, all the books you see behind me is just – a small glimpse of the books that I actually used yeah. uh, to source my my PowerPoint presentations. This is this is not some BS that came out of my mouth or out of my head, and that's important to note here because I don't want people to think, oh, she's just some Austrian woman who mm. who uh, experienced negative things in Kuwait and in Libya, and you know just wants to blast off a, a religion that we need to revere. That's not what I'm doing. I'm explaining what I saw with the sources behind me. And you, you know, I don't know if you can see, but I have the Quran, I have this, mm -hmm. the, the Hadith, the Sahih Buhari, and you know, I, I did all of that. So anyway, as more and more people came to my seminars, naturally, because people wanted to know what was going on, they, they yeah. also saw what I saw outside. Uh, of course, the left, the political left noticed what I was doing. So at some point in one of the seminars, there was a girl that had infiltrated. I didn't know at the time, although I did get bad vibes from that little girl. She was she must have been around 18 or 19 at the time, 20 maybe, a young aspiring journalist mm -hmm. who had who was so cool and had a recording device hidden in her backpack. How cool is that? I mean, really something. And thankfully for me, in hindsight, she recorded the 12-hour seminar. And what happened then was there was a transcript made, and the transcript, as it was, was then sent to the, um, to the uh, what is it, the, the prosecutor's office. The prosecutor immediately pressed charges, 
But at the same time, the reporter had a huge story about me blasting on uh, this magazine's cover, uh, Heinz Christian Strache, Heinz Christian Strache's School of Hate. That was front page. Okay. So can I? Like a, so like can a, I, that that was yeah. uh, that was if I'm right from going through. If that was Wednesday, the 25th of November, 2009. Correct. So you read that. What is what what went through your mind, and how did that day? Uh, pro- uh, work out. You've just read a headline. <laughs> you are the school of hate. No, I actually got I mean, the advanced copy. I got yeah, the advanced okay. copy. The 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 uh, magazine wasn't uh, so wasn't out until the next day. So I got the okay. advanced copy from a friend of uh, ours, of my husband's yeah. and and myself. And he called me and he said, "Oh my God, you know, I, look what I just. Nobody else told me. Mm. You know, nobody told me. It was just a, happened to be a friend." who worked in uh, the Freedom Party, who got okay. the advanced copy, and he immediately photocopied it and, and faxed it, because, of course, you know, technology was yep. different back then. So I remember, actually, over there, there's still the fax machine. I can still look at it. I went there, and the fax, as the pages came through, and I was reading through this, I couldn't believe what I was reading, because this was not, this was not me. They were describing uh, the woman who ate. Uh, she actually counted how many sandwiches I ate during the break. She stood right next to me. I noticed her. She stood. She stood right next to me, and she looked at my sandwich and she said, "Well, she's eating a pork sandwich. What is she trying to say with by eating this pork sandwich?" You know that this this was the gist of of you know this journalistic sensationalism and uh you know i was made to be the witch uh they the the, she also asked she also interviewed um uh members of the other religious uh groups uh, represented here in austria so she had bishops she had rabbis Mm. uh you know and it was just it was just unbelievable the the hatred that's you know I went into crisis mode and I started doing what needed to be done like I did in back mm. in in 1990 when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. There's no use lamenting and crying and and bemoaning what happened to you. Let's let's go and fix it. It doesn't mean that I didn't have dark nights, but yeah. you know you you do try to 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 fight it. So what I did was I immediately uh, retained counsel, got the best lawyer out there. Uh, I needed to find people to, I needed to find donations because I was out of a job immediately. Uh, I was fired right away. Uh, I couldn't pay for, for, for any of this. I, I simply do not have the, do, do not, and I still do not have any of the financial means to cover any of this. So, uh, so it was, a, you know, America helped me. We set up a, a donation fund. Uh, we we started uh, uh, doing interviews with me, trying to explain what happened. Who am I? Why am I saying all these things? Why, where did it come from? Is this pure hatred? Or maybe mm. is there something behind what she's saying? And at the same time, the smear campaign in the media and uh, moving on to, you know, fighting this in, in court. 
the can court I, date. Yes, go go ahead. Can I ask you about so the the charge was filed against you? The charge, your your crime was hate speech, but that was the um. The and it wasn't really you. hate speech. Let me interrupt you. It wasn't really yeah. hate speech. It was incitement to hatred. Okay, that was okay. the initial charge. And uh, I and was, was charged. That, that was submitted. That that was submitted by the publication. They they went and they reported you for this crime. Yes. Well, okay. no, they didn't. They didn't actually say the the crime yet. They left that okay. out uh, up to the to the prosecutor. They basically just said, "Look at what this woman is saying. This shouldn't okay. be allowed. Uh, you know, just figure something out." Hmm. So the first uh, the first charge was incitement to hatred, and. Uh, which is a is, is a very serious charge. Yeah. Uh, you can actually go to jail for that. You could go to jail for that even back in two thousand nine. Mm. And um, so you know, it was. It, I I was really busy. You know, I was a mom at the time. Look, I had a I had a four, five, six year old daughter. I needed yeah. to take care of her as well. But at the same time, mm. I was living in this parallel world that had nothing to do with my daughter, but everything to do with my daughter, because my daughter was nearing the age that she would be married, that she could actually be married off to a monster mm. like Muhammad. Yeah. And that's what I was fighting for. So I was living, you know, these, these two lives, uh, but at the same time fighting for my daughter, and at the same time, again, fighting for all these girls out there who are at risk of being married off to, to old men and being raped. As it's mm. happening every single day, we know that you know that. Yeah. So, um, so my lawyer and I got down to business. We had uh, discussions with the police. I was interrogated by the police. Um, this was then taken up to again to the to the prosecutor's office. Uh, nothing happened for uh, a, a, you know a few months. Mm. Uh, I didn't know where this was going. I was still kind of naive, hoping that uh, there would be some sense in the public prosecutor's office that this was ridiculous. Um, I still continued with my seminars as if nothing happened. And, uh, at the end of 2000, what was it? 2010. Yeah. Uh, that's when the trial began. Can and I, it was, can I ask you one thing we've, uh, just in the middle of that, obviously you were contacted by people like Robert Spencer, Pamela Geller, and in your book, you talk about going over and speaking to CPAC. And yes. of course, most people in the UK will not know much about CPAC, but we will now because Donald Trump has just spoken there and suddenly everyone is interested in CPAC here in the UK. But what was that like? That's such a prestigious event uh, for conservatives in the US. So just let us know what that was like for you going from Austria, suddenly finding yourself speaking at CPAC. Well, it was, it was, I can tell you it was incredible. Here I was a little housewife with a little child at home and a husband who, who was working at a doctor, as a doctor, as a surgeon. And I was, I was on, I remember very distinctly on that flight over to, to the States, to Washington, mm. uh, I was writing my own speech <laughs> and it was so surreal. I was practicing it. I was, you know, writing and practicing it and I couldn't believe it. You know, I never... You, pro you probably read that also in the book. I ne this was not my goal. Yeah, yeah. I am I am actually not a public person. I don't yeah. really need that. I don't that that's not part of me. I'll do it because I now consider it a duty. I was mm. shoved into the limelight, and it's very ironic because what what this publication this this uh, this magazine tried to do was to silence me. Isn't it so ironic 
that they did the exact opposite. They achieved yeah. the exact opposite. They made me famous. <laughs> you know, something that I never ever needed or wanted. I'm not the person who seeks the limelight. I'm, mm. I'm like I said, you know, I like I write in the book. I don't need all of this. I just want to sit around and read my Daniel Steele novels, okay, and yep. be a mom. But uh, you know, this is this is apparently what what God has has decided that I needed that I you know I'm the right person. Okay, I'll accept that. And it was incredible. I remember distinctly with Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer, people I admired so greatly. Mm. And all of a sudden I was sitting next to them on the podium. <laughs> and then there was Alan West and there was Steve Coughlin yeah. and uh, Wafa Sultan, I think, was on yeah. the podium too. And I was thinking, you know, this, wow. this little housewife all of a sudden gets to sit <laughs> with the creme de la creme of the, the newly forming counter jihad. Mm. Oh my God. And it was, you know, for the first time in my life, I remember it was packed, completely packed. People were, it was standing room only. There must've been 500 people in there. My first big speech. And pe I mean, people were, those who were sitting were giving me standing ovations, standing mm. ovations. I was thinking, oh, okay, this is interesting. I never expected <laughs> that. And all of a sudden I was thrust into the limelight. So here mm. I am all of a sudden, you know, people are asking me, can you come and speak? Can you come and speak? So, you know, I, I, I thought that it was going to be a one thing, you know, CPAC, great. Yeah. But all of a sudden people noticed me and, uh, and that helped me a lot. I was, I was grateful because these were potential donors. And, you know, I, I also explained this in the book, not one dollar and not one euro that was donated went to anything other than my defense. I made yep. sure of that. I will never have anyone tell me you are now a rich person because of this. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Nothing mm -hmm. has changed for me financially. I can tell you that. But, you know, somebody's got to pay for all of these books for me yep. to defend myself and my lawyer. And, again, I have to thank everyone every time I'm, I'm, I'm – every time I do an interview like this, thank you to all the donors mostly in the United States, but also, of course, across Europe, mm -hmm. uh, Israel, uh, people understood the importance of this case. Yeah. So you, you go back, you leave CPAC, that's two days of a different world. Obviously, you head back to your legal side, and then CPAC was, what, early 2010. And then we go later, I think September 2010, you were officially charged. And then your case yes. happened in November. So what was your, your first day in court, November 2010? Surreal, of course, again. Um, look, you know, uh, I still believe I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal. I didn't lie. Mm. Uh, I didn't do any. I'm not a criminal. I'm not. I'm, uh, all I did was, was speak. And everything I said was backed up. Yeah. And I, it, that's what that's what made it so surreal. This is this is a country, my beloved Austria, prosecuting me for something that I said. It was unbelievable, and that's what hurt me the most. Mm. Um, I was grilled by the judge. I was dismayed to see that it was a female judge because I knew right away that this wasn't going to to work out in my favor. Mm. Um, she grilled me. She really did. Uh, it was, it was just unbelievable. Uh, I didn't feel like, like, um, you know, innocent until proven guilty. 
I had to prove that I was actually innocent. That's yeah, that's yeah. that was the, sur the the really surreal part here was she grilled me in a way that I had to prove that I was was innocent. So um, it's interesting. Uh, what also stands out in in my my mind and my memory is uh, when the prosecutor was reading from his script, charging me. He also said that I was guilty of saying no to no to Sharia. Yes to democracy. Hello, somebody's putting me on trial for saying yes to democracy. I mean, <laughs> didn't they? Didn't this guy understand what he was saying? He really didn't mm. know what he was saying, right? Mm. I don't want Sharia law as being part of Austrian society, yeah. and I want democracy. I want a republic. I want freedom. That's what I was advocating for, and that's what you're putting me on trial for. Mm. I mean, what is this? So anyway, um, so I explained myself, explained myself. You can read the transcripts in the book. And it boiled down to one sentence that I said that I was found guilty for. But we mm. need to back up and, uh, and, re and, and explain to the audience that the tapes were played. And the tapes, the recordings, actually proved very conclusively that I was not guilty of incitement to hatred. So after half an hour of listening to those tapes, the judge right away said, okay, I think we can stop that because it's very obvious she did not incite to hatred. But, okay. but can I please tell the, please, may it please the court myself that I as a judge am adding another charge, which wow. is denigration of religious teachings of a legally recognized religion in Austria. So during the court proceedings, she introduced another charge. So instead and that's of finding where you, I knew I was never going to win it. But instead of finding you innocent of the charge, <laughs> you're going to be innocent. So instead, they decide another way to get you guilty. Uh, that is, uh, that's not justice. No, of course it's not. It's a kangaroo court. Yeah. They knew that the judge probably. I can't. I will never be able to prove it. But the judge was probably told by whoever. You need to find this woman guilty because we need to set an example. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what would happen because if you read the reasonings behind all of this, read it in the book. I don't think we have time to go into this. But if you read the reasonings behind how she argued the case to find me guilty in the end, you'll it, 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 it's nothing but a kangaroo court and an example needed to be set. So to give you the, the, the audience an idea of why I was found guilty was one single sentence. I said, a 56-year-old man marrying a six-year-old and consummating the marriage when she was nine. What do we call this behavior if not pedophilia? Notice mm -hmm. that I did not say Muhammad was a pedophile because I knew yeah. that was actionable under, under the law, even though it's the yeah. truth. I said, what do we call it? I would like another word. If we cannot call him a pedophile, I'll accept that. Yeah. But yeah. what do we call it if not pedophilia? Mm. So I, what I did was I asked a rhetorical question. And that rhetorical question, the judge said, you can't say that. You can't, you can't say that. You're 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 actually saying that he was a pedophile, which I didn't. I yeah. didn't. So this question 
that's what that's what got me. That's what 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 got me in trouble. The judge argued uh, it can't be pedophilia because uh, look at the the Habsburg Empire where children were married. Children were married to each other. Children they they can't consummate the marriage. Yeah. A six year old and a six year old cannot consummate the marriage. And what else? She she also argued. You can't call it pedophilia because Aisha, the child bride, stayed with Muhammad until he died, until, i.e., she was 18 years old. So it's no longer pedophilia. I, you know, even, even 11 years or 10, 12 years after the fact, it still, it still boggles my mind. I still don't understand how this could have happened. I, I, looking at the, the time, so you, you were in court three times. This all went on from the initial newspaper article for about 14, 15 months. Um, and then this new charge, my understanding, was introduced on February the 15th. Uh, this is yep. 2011. And then it was introduced, but then you were charged on that day. So yep. my, from what I read, it wasn't it. A new charge needs to be introduced. We need to now adjourn for a month, two months for you to prepare your defense. We did that, it was, yes. It was a new charge was introduced, and then you were found guilty as well uh, uh, in that same hearing, in effect. I was found innocent of incitement to hatred. Yeah. Uh, but guilty on denigration of uh, religious teachings. Now, it's interesting. What is the religious teaching behind what I said? Yeah. Are we now arguing that Muhammad really did well actually the 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 next court instance the the appellate court mm. agreed that it's an historical fact which is interesting how does the court know that this is a historical fact but anyway the court argued that it's a historical fact that Muhammad married Aisha when she was 6 consummated the marriage when she was 9 but calling this pedophilia is an excess of opinion yeah Wow. So you fought, you went to the appeal court, you went to the Austrian Supreme Court. Yes, I did. Um, so that was over a period of, uh, of two years. Mm -hmm. um, so what was, again, you're going, you're being dragged through the, the courts. What was that like? And I guess there is a cost, a financial cost as well as a personal cost to all of this. Well, the financial cost, thankfully, was covered by the donations. Okay. Uh, which, of course, forced me, which I enjoyed, but still forced me to spend quite a bit of time abroad yeah. uh, to explain to the American people why this uh, situation is important, not only to me, not only to Europe, but also to America. Um, so, you know, away, it's time away from my family in order to, to, uh, to get the donations that I needed to keep going. Uh, the personal cost is, of course, uh, my mother wasn't too pleased uh, about me. She didn't really know <laughs> how to deal with a daughter yeah. standing trial for something she said. Yeah. She was embarrassed at first, but then, you know, people in the streets came up to her and said, look, you know, I want to congratulate you on your brave daughter that she's doing what she's doing. So she then came around, but it was a very tough time. My husband supported me all the way, and uh, going uh, taking this case uh, to the Supreme Court was necessary. Why? Because if, if only if we take the court the the case all the way to the Supreme Court are we then able to to petition the European Court of Human Rights, which was mm -hmm. our goal 
from the very start. Uh, my, my lawyer and I knew that we weren't going to get justice in the Austrian system. But in order to petition the, the European Court of Human Rights, we need to exhaust all legal avenues in Austria, in the Austrian system. Yeah. So that was yeah. done, you, you fill me in, I think by 2012, I think we'd exhausted everything. And we then petitioned uh, the European Court. And uh, that took until the decision making, well, first of all, we, we had to wait for the case to be accepted by the court which yeah. uh, wasn't clear uh, because the court, of, of course, is swamped. Uh, yeah. But once the case was accepted, we were kind of hopeful uh, that there was a fighting chance for us to win this case because uh, the European Court of Human Rights is has historically been very much in favor of free speech. Uh, the case laws really did point to a fighting chance to win this thing. Um, it took until October of 2018 for the case, uh, for the for the decision to uh, appear, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a, that was again a foggy time because in October of 2018, only two days before uh, my mother passed away. So I was okay. fighting both my mother's passing away mm. and dealing with with that part of my life, but at the same time with that huge blow of losing uh, that case. Yeah. And again, you probably read this with great interest. The reasoning behind it is, is again, mind-boggling. It's, it's I, it, unbelievable that lawyers would actually come to this conclusion that my right to freedom of speech weighs less than a Muslim's right not to be offended. This, let me bring it, because this was, it was Gates of Vienna that uh, a, well, it obviously had been written about in, in the media, but Gates of Vienna was the first thing friendly publication that I saw on it. And this was October the 26th, 2018, the ECHR, European Court of Human Rights Rules Against Elizabeth sabadich Wolf. <clears throat> and then it goes in and it explains um, and it it does seem that obviously there is a a a fear of what may happen because Islam does not take too well to criticism, and it seems obviously it is the case that Islam has a special protected status that others are not afforded. Obviously, the the ruling there was was a, a surprise. I, you were expecting that common sense would prevail at some level. It never did. Uh, no. So again, whenever that ruling came down, how um, that was it, you'd reached the end of the line legally. So what yeah. were your thoughts on that? Well, uh, my thoughts were, that's it. My work in Europe, in Austria is, is done. There's nothing more I can do. I will never speak in public again in Austria and in Europe, and I haven't done so, and I won't in the mm. future because I'm, uh, you know, I'm brave, but I'm not mm. stupid. You know, I don't need to go through this again. I proved my point already, so uh, it's over. There's nothing for me to, to add. And uh, so I decided I would now fight for free speech in the United States. That was my, my next goal, uh, to explain to Americans, look, you know, look what happened to me in Europe. Uh, do not think that this is not going to, to, to happen in the U.S. You think you're protected by the First Amendment. Nothing's going to happen to you. but 
let me let me read something to you. Hmm. In what was it? I think that this was this was just right after right after my 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 judgment came down uh, in okay. 2018. A poll: majority of Americans want First Amendment rewritten. 51% of millennials want fines or jail time for hate speech. More than 60% of Americans agree on restricting speech in some way, while a slim majority want to see the First Amendment written to f reflect the cultural norms of today. Now, do you, do you honestly think that, that this is not going to happen in the U.S.? It's already happening. So wake up and smell the coffee. This is really yeah. happening. You need to, to, to fight. This is what I said back in 2018, 19. Now we're in 2021. Look at, look at what's happening. It's getting worse and worse. People are being being kicked out of, uh, they're, you know, they're losing their jobs. They're being deplatformed, de demonetized. Everything is happening at the same time. So I needed, I needed to work on this in mm. the U.S., traveling back and forth, crisscrossing the U.S. Uh, and then, of course, first of all, the book had to be written. So right yep. after my mother passed away, I believe, you know, I, I, I saw this as a sign that I needed to sit down and write this story. So I sat down. That's what I did. I, I, uh, I, I wrote this book. It needed to be written. It's an important book. It may not be a bestseller, but maybe one day it will because it, will ex it, it explains what happens to you when you speak the truth. And that's, you know, hence the title. The truth is no defense, no matter what you say, even if it's, if it's the provable truth. And as I like to say, we could have had Muhammad and Aisha testify on my behalf. It would not have made a difference because today, black is white, white is black. And two plus two no longer equals four. Absolutely. So the the left uh, looking at our our time for our last five minutes or so. So the obviously the left tried to destroy and shut you down, and and they created something else, which a I monster. guess is a worst nightmare. <laughs> I was going to say that. I'll let you say that. Um. So for the last, obviously that was two and a half years ago. The ruling European Court. So what you've you've travelled, you've focused in the states. Tell us about kind of what your work has been, and then before we finish off on what your kind of plans are and what you want to achieve going forward. Well, I mean, like I said, I I, I have traveled back and forth in the U.S. I testified on Capitol Hill. Mm. I briefed uh, uh, members of Congress, uh, famous members of Congress. Uh, I meet Louis Gohmert, for instance, uh, every time I. I uh, travel to to Washington DC he's always on my list he always wants to be briefed what's going on uh, I've been doing a lot of political work as well I've been advising uh, members of parliament from the Freedom Party uh, mm -hmm. in the background my goal is to educate the American people because I believe Europe is lost that's my that's yeah. you know I this is not something new I knew Europe was lost when I start mm. began this journey in 2006 or seven mm. there's no hope for Europe we're gone we're lost but the United States must not lose because without America there's no place to go we're, we're, we're gonna have to look to America to once again uh, rescue us that's that's the way it's going to be. Like it or not, like America or not, and I know there's plenty of people who who disagree or dislike America, and of course there's lots to dislike. But remember that the that the American Constitution, especially the American Bill of Rights, is the gold standard. 
when it comes to free speech and freedoms in general. And remember also, without the First Amendment, without your right to free speech, all other freedoms are null and void. They're not worth a thing. So it is freedom of speech that is so important, especially now uh, in our, our age of COVID, this madness. Look what's happening. Yep. You know, you say one thing that doesn't conform with the narrative. You know that, Peter. <laughs> you yep. just explained it at the beginning of, of the show. You, you say something that doesn't fit the narrative, and you're deplatformed, deplatformed demonetized, you're vilified, you're a Nazi, uh, you know, whatever. So our fight is in essence, and it's going to continue to be that, it is all about freedom of speech. And not freedom of speech, but but freedom of speech, period. Because once you add the word but, it's no longer freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. If you want to, to label me, uh, call me a free speech fundamentalist. I believe in free speech, period. Within the law, of course. Uh, but the, the, the U.S. law, I mean, the case law in the U.S. is very clear about what free speech means. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. But uh, remember Galileo Galilei. What he said back many centuries ago was considered blasphemy. Was, he was vilified. He was actually a walking conspiracy theory. Yeah. Okay? I don't think yeah. I need to add anything. A conspiracy theory is first and foremost a theory. Yeah. And it can be proven and disproven. But let's not label people hate mongers and Nazis and whatever. Let's have a discussion. That's what free speech is all about. And not about narrowing the corridor and deplatforming people and kicking them out. Because that's, permit me to say that, that's what the Nazis did. Let's not go where they went. We are better than that. And our oh. adversaries are better than that too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for just for finish off in just the last minute or two, can I ask you in counter truth? Uh, I saw that in the bottom of your emails and we've chatted. So do you want to just give our viewers a little taste of what that is? Um, I've joined a uh, free speech platform uh, based in the United States uh, called Encounter Truth. And I have, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to host a weekly show, a live show on this platform uh, called Katie and the Wolf. I've teamed up with uh, the world famous uh, Katie Hopkins. Yeah. And she and I do our live shows every Thursday at uh, 2 p.m. Central uh, American Central Time. So that would be 8 p.m. UK time. Uh, Katie's currently on a hiatus, so I'm doing my shows uh, by myself. But look, you know, I have great guests every week. Um, and for instance, I had uh, Alan West on my show to discuss mm. uh, the election. Uh, it's a subscription-based show. The reason for this being uh, that this is uh, multi-security layered, so we can't get deplatformed. And there are hopefully no trolls, at least none that I'm aware of. And it's, it's uh, also uh, people can join in the conversation. So, uh, you know, hopefully some people, some of our viewers will be interested in joining it. Uh, you can find more information on encountertruth.com. 
That's the basic website. If you want to get a subscription, uh, go on to encountertruth.net. I would love to see you there. It's interactive. And uh, hopefully I will be back uh, in the United States, though right now it doesn't look like that. Uh, we're stuck in our own countries uh, for the time being. Yeah. But I can tell you I'm sick and tired of doing this on Zoom or any other platform because I really would like to start hugging people again. I'm with you completely, Elizabeth. Uh, just let our viewers know the link for your book, uh, The Truth of No Defense, is in the description, and also the link to Encounter Truth is there. So everything is there. So I'd encourage people to uh, not only get a hold of your book. I got it as an audio book. It was easy to get. Um, if you listen to books, you can get it there. You can uh, buy a copy. Um, mm -hmm. And I encourage you to go and go to Encounter Truth and have a look. And I'm sure you'll find many interesting things on that website. Um, Elizabeth, we'll bring it to an end. Uh, we could talk about, I'm fascinated about your whole background, about the countries you've been in, that, but that will have to wait for another time that we can go deeper into that. But thank you so much for your time this evening. It's been fascinating. And it's been fascinating meeting you face to face for the first time. And I hope that we're able to meet each other in person someday soon. Hopefully and this year. With a big hug. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Let yes, me just me finish off with our viewers, Elizabeth. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Obviously, we're not on uh, YouTube. We got hit for, uh, we got, well, we got hit for hate speech talking about grooming gangs, but that was after getting hit for medical misinformation. And of course, they don't tell you what it's for. You can appeal, but you don't know what you're appealing because you don't know what you said. So it's a bit difficult. So they rejected our appeal as expected, but you can watch on all the other platforms on Facebook, VK, uh, DLive on the website and on Rumble and Bitchit. So thank you so much for moving over and following us wherever we go. Um, have a good rest of your Monday evening, and we'll be back with you on Thursday as usual. So thank you so much to our viewers, and thank you to Elizabeth, and good night to you all. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.